I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wurundjeri people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Holding on to our history and recognising the things that really do fit is, is an exciting thing. Even if Cabernet is incredibly out of fashion, the number of people who are laughing say, you're planting what? We're pulling it out. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. McGregor Forbes, more casually known as Mac, has been integral in shaping the regionality within the renowned Yarra Valley. More than that, his label Mac Forbes has developed and maintained a cult following right from the beginning. It's hard to say if Mac is better known for his site-specific Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, superb array of dry and off-dry Rieslings, or perhaps it's his luscious brown curls that adorn his head. Either way, Mac Forbes and his wines should definitely be on your hit list. Hi, Mac. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. What an over-the-top introduction. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you very much. Not at all. I think it's very fitting. Thank you very much. (laughs) Anyway, first off, how was your camping trip? Did the rain hold off for you? Uh, What have we done? We've been thick in harvest, so um, we did have a... We've had a camping trip before harvest where my son lost his front teeth, so that wasn't much fun. (gasps) Uh, oh, no, it's got to happen at some point, I suppose. But sure does. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, everything's good. It's all a blur for me right now. It's um, we're about halfway through harvest, and uh, the sleep deprivation's kicking in quite nicely, as is the caffeine hit. I bet. And how are you going for harvest? Have you got enough people, and everything's underway? I mean, the rain hasn't been as crazy for you down there, so that's been okay, has it? Yeah, I think. Um, Gee, every year feels like it's got its own quirks. We finally got our first overseas interns in after the last couple of years. So I think you forget how much you um, embrace different perspectives and different mindsets. And as we've got a remarkable team, but I think you realize we've been having the same conversations for a few years now. So um, from that point of view, it's been incredibly refreshing to to have a couple of overseas people coming in and and just uh, adds such a lovely dimension, I guess. Um, So that's been really positive. And as far as the season, we've just been working really hard through a very wet winter and spring into an incredibly dry um, summer. So it's, uh, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's been good, tiny, but really incredible clarity and detail in the fruit. Oh, well, that's exciting. I mean, it's hard when it is a, you know, smaller yields, but um, exciting to know that the, the, the quality is up where you want it. Mac, if it's all right, can you bring us back to your kind of the start and how you got your start in winemaking? Um, you know, you've got a fantastic story, so I want people to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm, whether it's a great story, I think it's definitely a story of the time. And I, I do love the historical elements and the, I guess, the cultural references for that wine can share. And I feel that there's nothing particularly remarkable about my journey apart from the fact that it documents, I think, a, you know, an interesting chapter within our country and our coming to grips with what it means to be Australian and all the remarkable chapters prior to, to I guess, my, you know, my coming into the, the industry. But, um, and I had been really fortunate to be born in the Yarra. I was conscious there was a wine industry here as I grew up and my parents were not directly involved uh, in the industry other than being very staunch supporters. And I guess with Shandon coming into the region in the early 80s, there was 
that sort of first recognition that what we had here was valid. And so that was probably lurking in the background. I remember turning 18 and, you know, a few friends who went out on a bit of a winery tour and, and you're sort of appreciating that a company from outside of Australia would come here was, I think, a pretty interesting uh, realisation. And probably not understanding the region at all was, you know, for me, something I was conscious of. It's a big region here. Our connection with place, I think, has always been tenuous at best. And um, I grew up on a farm, but didn't really understand soils or our interaction with it. We were very much farming on top of the land, I guess. So it was, I certainly haven't had a light bulb moment that led me to the industry. Um, it was very much just little steps. And, and then when I was 18, I was traveling and got to France and ran out of cash and worked harvest um, in the southwest of France with dad's cousin. And that was probably another little step, the sitting around the table and sharing ideas. And, and um, I, yeah, I think it was just a, probably a little booklet of experiences that really drew me to the industry, but it also sort of, I guess, on a subconscious level initially, raised a lot of questions about what it meant to be from here and and what our interaction with the land looked like so yeah it, it's been a long journey to make a lot of small steps <laughs> absolutely and and you know the Yarra Valley has such an incredible story in terms of what it went through in the 80s all the way until now where did you first start working and making wine and and, and where was that yeah so I guess I went through uni um and that was after I'd started at Melbourne doing a sort of science degree and failing miserably and was just completely, at you know, completely lost. And my old man had always, as it turns out, I've now seen all these applications for winemaking courses and he was a vet in the Yarra. So um, he was always pushing me to get into wine and you're never going to do what your old man tells you, especially when you're 18. So it was only when I was completely lost and um, mum had said, well, have you actually thought about the wine game? Because you are heavily drawn to many parts of it. And so after a very brief consideration, I, I thought, let's uh, get on the train and get over to Adelaide. So I, I did the four, four years over there. And um, I, yeah, I think there were, certainly a few key moments one was ringing John Middleton from Mount Mary um, we were making a uni wine a Cabernet from McLaren Vale and it was Sunday STD rates you know charged by the minute and I thought I'll just give him a quick call and I was incredibly scared to call him anyway about two and a half hours later and reams of toilet paper with notes written across it because I just couldn't keep up with everything he was offering I finally got off the phone, I think half shaking, half, you know, with excitement and probably more so with fear. And yeah, so I guess there was a little bit of a relationship there with John and then I got out of uni and did a harvest in WA and was on my way through to um, Canada of all places to work with a guy I'd met who was at Coldstream Hills and was going over to Inniskillen in Canada and I popped into Mount Mary and at the time, uh, Mario Marson had just resigned. So I spent what ended up being a few hours with John and um, at the end of that, he said, I'd like you to consider the role. And I just said, absolutely not. I'm not gonna be the person to take down Mount Mary. Um, but I think it was a really fascinating time. And I look back now and I'm like, oh, there, there was some, some sense in all of it because I think, um, you know, that was around uh, 99 when I took that. and. 
I was fresh out of uni and I was awestruck by Mount Mary and I think there was so many people pushing for bigger styles of wines and just uh, I guess the way the relationship evolved there at Mount Mary was that I'd go down every day for a glass at the end of the day and he knew exactly what I was doing and I was certainly not about to come in and make wholesale changes and I think if he'd put somebody in with a bit more experience they probably would have felt like they were able to improve Mount Mary by upping certain things and um, and so a lot of the probably yeah certainly a lot of life lessons and things that you know I do within the business and within I guess the culture of way we operate you know a lot of that was founded through those years at Mount Mary where a lot of what John was doing was against the trends of the moment and what sort of size and operation and the, the focus on farming and execution was, um, you know, paramount to being sustainable, whether you're in vogue or out of vogue. Absolutely. I mean, what an icon of the, an icon of the region and, and probably great that you walked in and you just kind of listened and learnt when you were there. I mean, what a person to learn from. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there's probably three key things that I keep coming back to in what we're doing now. And you know time is a huge factor and I think that's something that I took out of that period um, so time and, and adaptation are, um, are two really key things and the time thing with Mount Mary was was such an interesting thing looking at not trying to generate something for today but what it looks like tomorrow um, and so a lot of what John was doing was to be measured in decades not you know not years or months so both from farming and you look at the establishment of dry farm vineyards and versus irrigated and the time commitment to give that the four or five years and you know we've gone back to that ourselves all the dry farming and so that's you know that also allows space for a plant to adapt and so yeah so the big three things space time and adaptation I think those foundations for me were really set back in in those days and um you know, I'm not probably overly patient in many parts of my life, but um, I think the great thing about this industry, when you're starting with farming right through to the relationships you form is, uh, you know, I think you actually do want to be patient. You need to be patient. Mm, it feels like the, the kind of the soul or the very core of what farming is all about. And, you know, I suppose with lots of different types of farming, you can get removed and get caught up, but it's great to remind yourself of what, you're originally there to do you know um you created your own brand in 2004 um what what led you to to create your own brand and what was the vision for that mac wines at that time yeah, it probably hasn't changed greatly which could be a good or a bad thing but i just spent a lot of time in europe and i guess i was really stung by the perception that australian wine had no sense of place it was all artifact and it really started when the fruit arrived at the winery and um, I think my, yeah, it was definitely a sense of pain that we were being perceived a certain way and then actually when I'd go to argue differently, there weren't, there wasn't the body of work to be able to demonstrate that we understand our soils and that the story begins under our feet, not above us and that it's not just about sunshine in a bottle. So, and then I worked in Austria for a while and I got to see a very, you know, what was a relatively poor, even though they'd been making wine since, you know, the Roman times, it, the region was up against Slovakia and Hungary and, 
mixed farms and you could see a, a loss of identity and, and an absolute lack of confidence to back themselves in. So they got the Aussie consultant in thinking they were going to do Shiraz and Cabernet blends and make international wine styles. And I just fell in love with Saint Laurent and Blaufränkisch and Gruner and all these native grapes to the region. And um, it's amazing that it's the outsider that often ha has the clarity of a situation, which we find happens all the time here when people come in and say something like, oh my gosh, it's been staring us in the face for so long. And, you know, we just couldn't appreciate it. Um, so I think that's just a human trait, um, but it certainly was strong enough um, in that experience in Austria to say, right, well, maybe it's just a matter of coming back and looking at what different sites look, look like, how they behave and actually just start the journey because you can wait around for someone else to do it or you just bite the bullet and say, well, we're going to make a ton of mistakes on the way through and it will be a bit messy at times, but un unless we actually have a crack at it ourselves, um, you know, we can't really blame anyone else. Absolutely. I mean, I, do you have somebody that's, that stayed with you, a uh, winemaker or viticultural, somebody that stayed with you from that kind of incarnation at the start or have you had multiple people that have come in? Yeah, there's... Probably the longest standing person across the, the length or the breadth of the business is uh, a viticulturalist who happened to come on board before we even had any vineyards. And I was just working with growers trying to challenge and, you know, I guess, look at best practice. And that's Dylan Grieg, who has gone from, you know, he was working at a neighbouring business and um, was pretty frustrated with what was going on there. And he came in, just started helping in the cellar after he'd finished in the vineyard during the days. And he, uh, he's gone on and got his PhD and uh, he'd actually be a great person for you to talk to. He's, but he's, um, he's just bought a vineyard in the Barossa that was the old, um, Richard Betts and Carla's the approach to relaxation. And he's a Barossa boy originally, but he did his PhD in Vine Age, looking at old vines. He's he's got the greatest capacity to question and learn. And so, I guess for me, you know, I've got family members that have been, you know, incredibly supportive. But in terms of being able to question our own mindset and look at things through different lenses. Uh, Dylan Grigg is without doubt the, the best mate and the, the best supporter for our, the evolution of our business. And we certainly wouldn't be where we are now with our, um, I guess, our understanding or lack thereof at times of where we are without him putting a mirror on a lot of the things we've done. That's awesome. I've heard you talk about him before, but it's lovely to revisit. I haven't met him, but we'll have to one of these days. Um, yes. You talked a little bit earlier about you know, the sense of place and, and, and you've really honed in on that. But where does the winemaker style come in? And is that something valid that you think about when you approach your own wines? Or are you just literally trying to gather what the, the world has given you and bottle it? But do you think that winemaking style is, is something valid that we speak about? Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm constantly in a state of, you know, struggle with uh, with this conversation because obviously we do make wines with purchased fruit and we you know we're putting different hats on particularly in the cellar in that situation i think in terms of our obligation to better connect and understand the land you know that's really where our pinot and chardonnay conversation comes in and that evolution of winemaking style around that uh has 
definitely been driven by our own contradictions and, you know, I guess putting the onus back on fixing problems in the vineyard and being true to what we're seeing. And even at the expense of, oh, we could make a wine that might get better recognition or get better, you know, a better response, at least in the short term, if we capitalise here or we do that. And it's like, well, then we're contradicting our whole ambition, which is to, to give absolute transparency. And even if that brings into question how we taste wine or what we're, what we're how we define a good wine, um, if that's part of our learning and, and interaction. And I just think we've got too big an obligation when you think about Indigenous community here and the sacrifices made and the knowledge lost. And you think about um, the, the focus on monovarietal or crop, single crops and the responsibility to the waterways here and to, you know, there's so many elements to our connection with the land that I think we need to be honest and frank about and if putting this bottle on the table generates some conversation around that and you know I mean I think that's the most powerful thing of wine is that you're putting putting culture and agriculture and the land on the table that that can generate some conversation and it's not always about the most perfect wine it's often about the, the wine that is imperfect and why and is that actually a better representation of where it's from so yeah I mean I, I love the topic and I think you can dive in you know obviously and go along down a lot of rabbit holes but um, it's it's what makes it really exciting. Yeah and and you know you were as far as I, I'm concerned really big in 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 bringing that conversation back to some of the the perhaps lesser known regions within the Yarra Valley how did that come about and and was was that a challenge in terms of not just talking about perhaps um, the Yarra Valley itself but talking about some of these other regions like the Strathbogie Ranges and then coming back around to talk about Gladysdale and and how did you go about kind of marketing and communicating that to to the drinkers <laughs> that's a very funny conversation um yeah, I, we do laugh and say if, if we were offering advice to anyone, we would definitely tell them to keep it simple and minimise the number of wines and subregions. And then what have we gone and done exactly the opposite? Uh, do you know, I, I think I understand what you're saying by that, but I really think that it's been always really clear to me that a lot of thought goes into how you tell and communicate your story and you grow as a business and you do add more lines, but I feel like it's always been very clear messaging and I think that that gets through. So that's why I'm asking because I actually think you do it really very well. What makes us say yes to all of these is that we find these vineyards and we've got curiosity, but we feel even walking in, you say, oh, this has got a real presence, this place. And then we'll try to break it down. We might make a wine a couple of years and, and see where the fruit's going before we might put Gladysdale on it say and, and make it its own I guess share that story and so if we're about sharing the stories we're seeing and and the story is quite different and it's raised a lot of questions and maybe generated some you know some potential answers as to why it's behaving a certain way then I feel that's part of at our core of trying to share what makes this place unique and that we've got our own story rather than one that's being manipulated but it just is naturally there we include another wine quite easy um, because we're not we're not trying to come up with a gimmicky story it's just this is what we're seeing and we just want to share it and it was a a close mate years ago when we sort of introduced our block our black label sort of um, 
where we had a section of the hill at Wurri, which we now pick, you know, five sections walking down the hill and we're looking at the differences to celebrate rather than trying to homogenise the block and make it all uniform. Where we see those differences, we try to allow them that room to come out and we might prune them differently or whatever, but we're trying to respond to those nuances and differences in a positive way and embrace that. And then I said to a mate one, you know, this is probably 10 or 12 years ago, oh yeah, we bottled off a dozen bottles of this this block because it just looks so clear and, and just its structure's just a little bit different that we, you know, and he's like, you bastard, I've been bloody buying wine from you from day one because I'm on the journey with you and you're, you're now telling me that you don't, you're not going to share part of this story. And that was the little, a little bit of a light bulb moment. It's like, ah, oh, we're, we're not in the business of trying to make great wine. We're in the business of just trying to capture and share the stories we're seeing in the land. And, and I think that's, you know, it almost was like a weight had lifted because we're not, our ambition is not at the end point. We're not trying to create something for a market. It, our origins are where does the vineyard start? What are we seeing there? What are we tasting? And then our obligation is to, you know, and I, I, I think in terms of the last couple of years, how fermentation at home and all sorts of things, be it food products or what have you, it's all about preserving. Well, I think in the most simple form, we're just trying to preserve the elements in the vineyard that we're seeing that tell the story of the land. And so, you know, we created the black label worry or whatever it is on the back of Rob telling me, you know, that I was selling short our agreement that our obligation in, in our relationship with the customer is that we're sharing as best we can what, what we're experiencing being out in the vineyard. And yeah, I think in a really simple form that, that is all we're doing. I wanna ask you, you probably won't like this question, but you, um, you play a big part of your brand. <laughs> it's one of the things I admire most um, and I wonder about as well, because you invest so much of yourself uh, into it. But I think you, you are one of the greatest speakers about you know, place and what you're doing and, and what it means to you. Why do you think it's so important to invest so much of yourself into this brand? Yeah, and I should, well, I should first say that certainly not just me, we've got this, and I'm actually, we certainly wouldn't be even close to where we are now in our understanding if we just had a bunch of, you know, yes people working together. We have got highly, and we, we reflect on this often, that there's so many people who wouldn't enjoy working with us and wouldn't enjoy the trials that we run and the, you know, going against often the, the main school of thought and the objective of getting X tonnes per acre or whatever that where, you know, even just going back to dry farming and organic, you know, practices, it, it increases the workload so heavily that you are only going to attract people that are really engaged, I think, emotionally as well as mentally to to this program or to this, you know, path that we're on. So, yeah, I end up being the main, um, I guess, communicator around it, but I'm certainly not the only one. And then internally, um, my gosh, it's just a, it's really powerful. Um, and the level of respect, and I think, you know, you talk about what we're trying to do. I think we start with respect and appreciate that every relationship with the land, with, within our teams, with our customers or suppliers, you know, they're very similar principles. And I think 
that long-term view can be applied to all parts of the business as well. So, yes, I'm, I'm the main, you know, I guess uh, the face of it. I stupidly put my name on the label, all of those things. But um, it's, it's also, yeah, I guess that's just the reality of it. <laughs> Oh, I think you do a, a wonderful job. And I, I was going to ask you about who your biggest supporters of wine are. I certainly know sommeliers tend to uh, get some kind of, I don't know, idea of Mac Forbes wines and, and, and it comes along and they're kind of committed to life after that. And I think a lot of that has to do with your trips and bringing people down there and showing sight and showing them an amazing time because after that, that, you know, I never need to speak to them about Mac Four wines again. That they're, they're off and they're running. So, do you have a particular type of drinker that you attract? Uh, that's a good question. I, I actually don't know. Um, there's obviously some people who are drawn to you know certain wines we constantly make, and you know I think the EB range is interesting, seeing who's drawn to the the experiments, the one-offs, and then you've got yeah, but I. I don't know. I hope. I hope. I guess that we've we're attracting people who are just genuinely curious and um, feel that they come away and have a sense that they've connected with with a place, um, rather than just drinking a wine. That's probably my hope. Um, and I think, like we said at the beginning about where yeah. where you get that feedback, it's often been people overseas that will recognise the Wurri Vineyard in a lineup, or they'll recognise, and they, you know, it was overseas trade primarily who first really reassured me that what we have is, whether it's good or bad, what we have is unique and that it's recognisable. And I think pulling all the makeup off and pairing it back and for people to recognise that has been you know, incredibly reassuring. Um, yeah, it's, but where that leaves the, the drinker, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got a, a wide range, which I think is the best possible outcome that you can have. Um, talking a little bit about your Hugh Cabernet um, and Merlot range, the Yarra Valley is home to some of the most influential and long-lived wines of Australia, um, but they've had, like we said, a varied past. Talk to me a little bit about where the Hugh range comes in and what that means to the Yarra Valley or, or means to you from, from the past. Yeah, it's probably the only wine we make where we're unashamedly um, imitating another wine and that's old Yarra Claret. Um, I, you know, to drink some of the clarets from the 70s and early 80s and you see the behaviour in people, if you, you know, especially if you've got people in from overseas and I'm trying to impress upon them all these bloody sub-regions and this story, and you sort of get to the end of the night and think, oh, let's just pull out an old, an old Yarra Claret, and the body language changes and they just let go of everything. And maybe it's because I'm showing something that's not, not from our cellar, but it, it definitely, and this is why I've gone back to dry farming and things like this as well, because these are young vines quite often displaying a sense of place that is so vivid and so powerful and you put it in the context of decades where the wines were unhurried in the growing and the vines are fully allowed to adapt. They weren't propped up by irrigation and all of these things. They were given room to, to find their way in, in that environment that they were planted and then they weren't rushed to, to bear fruit. Fruit was dropped for the first few years. And then those first you know, five years, instead of showing young vine character, they actually displayed the Yarra Valley so beautifully. And um, yeah, I think, I think it's a really powerful blend that we're you know, in the midst of just planting a, a new 
Cabernet's block and it's you know it's it's as exciting for me as planting a high density Pinot block for completely different reasons but I think holding on to our history and recognizing the things that really do fit is is an exciting thing even if Cabernet is incredibly out of fashion the number of people who are laughing saying you're planting what we're pulling it out (laughs) so yeah it's an interesting time for Cabernet Oh, I don't sit in that camp. I think Cabernet is bloody excellent. So <laughs> Good. Good. I'm pleased to hear it. I might drink more Pinot Noir, but Cabernet is an incredible wine. And, I, and I'm glad that you, you have that range. And I think that it is an important part of the Yarra Valley story. So I'm glad that it's there. And I, and I, and I think it, it suits your, your, the rest of your um, portfolio. So anyway, what's coming up next for Mac Forbes? I know you've got a lot going on. You're never somebody that sits idly by. You've got new varieties, Nebbiolo and Shannon in the Don Valley. But what's happening in the next few years for you? Yeah, look, we've obviously got phylloxera in the Yarra, so replanting is a huge headache. Just trying to, I guess, preserve old vines is the, the where they look fantastic. The, the heartache of um, even considering pulling them out to replant. So we've got a couple of little strategies around that where we've done some pretty amazing trials attaching American rootstock um, grafting American rootstock buds to the base of own rooted trunks and getting a, a effectively a second root system up and running to preserve those older vines. So there's a lot of work around that which is exciting and tiring all at once. Um, and we've got a little block in Tasmania which I guess the consideration of future proofing obviously what we're doing in the Yarra you're constantly looking at what's it going to look like in 20 or 40 years. So if we're putting Grenache in or Mencia or you know things that may be out of focus right now but might offer something in another 20 years I think that passing something over that is of value in in the future is something we actually do embrace and think it's important um so yeah there's there's a huge number we're still sort of running about um half a dozen vineyards in the Yarra and and Tassie's just quietly ticking along in Signet as well so it's busy but it's bloody exciting as always absolutely it is well, Mac, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Shannon <laughs> uh, Blanc. Um, I don't think anyone said Shannon yet, and I'm a big fan of Shannon. Good for you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Such a sexy wine. <laughs> I love Shannon. Um, because then you can probably, if you had to cut out champagne, you could probably push into some pretty smart Shannon bubbles as well. Mm. Um, I think... Do you veer away from wine at this point? I mean, great tea is really hard to beat. Um, and it's a broad selection, so I'd probably throw tea in there. Maybe more than bloody Java coffee. I think, yeah, I, I think the uh, the tea factor's pretty good. So you mean like green tea and... Yeah, good oolongs and things like that. Yeah, okay. My gosh. Um, and then I'd probably still have to go with Riesling. <laughs> I can't <laughs> But for versatility, I think that's, uh, I mean, unless you went Pinot and then you could throw in bubbles as well. But uh, yeah, let's go Shannon, Riesling and tea. And tea. I like that. It's sensible. They're all delicious drinks. Uh, Work in different situations. They do. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, Mac, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you, whether it be over the phone or over a gin and tonic at some late night bar in the future. Thanks for making time for me. Uh, and I, I do hope that we get to see you in trade soon. Um, it's been far too long between drinks, so... It has. Hopefully, hopefully we'll see you up. Best of luck with Harvest. I hope it all goes well. Fingers crossed. We'll keep the rain up our way and hopefully not send it down south. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. Have a good day. Thanks for having me. Cheers for you. Bye. Bye. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.